So Richard Epstein owes me a dollar. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Roe versus Wade is history. That landmark 1973 ruling that said a woman had a constitutional right to abortion now goes back to the states. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robertson and Rob Long. I'm James Monick. Today we talk to John Yu about the court and Ian Rowe about agency. Let's have ourselves a long, serious podcast. I can hear you! <laughs> Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast number 599. Wow. Join us next week for the Big 600, but also you can join us right now at ricochet.com and be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. We're going to go right to our guest because it's a big day. John Yu is here. John is the Ricochet Podcast's top legal contributor. He's also the Emanuel S. Helder Professor of Law at UC Berkeley, senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Where I think the power is out and everybody's now reading the decisions by Candle. He's here to talk about a couple of these uh, enormous big Supreme Court decisions. Turns out that uh, something that was explicitly mentioned in the Constitution is right and something that wasn't is not. Here's the pull away, take away quote, quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to, to abortion. Roe and Casey are overturned and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. In other words, the dark night of fascism and handmaid's tale descents. Or some will tell you, John, welcome. You've read the whole thing by now. It's been out for what, an hour, two hours or so with your speed reading ability. You've uh, you've skimmed or you've absorbed or you've completely read it. What's your take? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me back, guys. And I was able to read it quickly because a liberal clerk issued the cliff notes about two months ago. <laughs> so that part went quick. <laughs> In fact, uh, Justice Alito's uh, leaked opinion did not change that much other than to reply to the dissents. But it is, as you say, uh, James, this might be uh, for a constitutional law uh, scholar and practitioner. This might be the most important day um, uh, in my lifetime and since Brown versus Board of Education, I would say uh, the court. And, and if you tie it to the opinion that came out yesterday in the guns case, uh, I think this is a the seat change in constitutional law that conservatives have been working for towards for uh, since the 1980s. Uh, it just took 40 years for it to happen. And as you say, James, one last thing is uh, this decision, as we talked about before, when the leak came out, uh, returns the question of abortion to normal politics. Uh, people are now going to be able to argue and persuade and vote ultimately on what their state's abortion policy is going to be. And we're going to have a diversity of different abortion regimes throughout the country, just like we do on lots of other life and death issues. It would sound um, like that's a, a something in favor of our democracy, as we're constantly being told is in peril. But yet it doesn't seem that our democracy is that important if it means that this right is taken away. Yeah, so, in fact, it's a strange uh, juxtaposition to see our elected members of the 
Congress demanding that they not decide these questions, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. demanding that the courts take it out of their hands. And so, in a way, this is going to demand accountability on the part of you know, the people we vote for in state legislatures and in Congress, because now they're going to have to represent our views on abortion rather than kicking the question over to the justices. And one, one last point about institutions. I'm, I'm proud of the court today, in a way, whether you agree with abortion or not. Uh, the thing that w- worried me beyond the issue of abortion was whether the court was going to lose its institutional independence if it were to bend the knee to all of these attacks up to including an attempted assassination on Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and so the court, you, you, when you look at the opinions, the court's majority opinion did not really change one bit when it came to why it was overruling Roe. And so I'm proud of that for the court. Are you surprised by that? I'm not. I, in a way, I thought um, I thought that's what the leak was designed to do. I think the leak of the opinion, unprecedented leak, first time in the history of the Supreme Court, a leak of an opinion. The reason I think a clerk did that was likely a clerk did that was to try to increase the political pressure from the outside on the justices, and uh, it didn't work. John, so I, yes, the the big question when the Alito when the leak of Justice Alito's opinion came out, at least the big question among conservatives was where the chief justice would come down the chief justice had not signed that leak and the big speculation ever since has been with the chief just the expectation is the chief might write some kind of concurring opinion but refuse to sign the main opinion and that he might be able to pull somebody off that main opinion and flip the whole decision where did the chief justice come out so uh you can uh, we can proclaim on episode 599 they mistimed it they should have waited one more week so this could happen at episode 600 of law talk i'm sorry i wish this was law talk i wish we were at 600 on we're law prepping talk. you for the law ricochet talk, <laughs> right we're we're just a little satellite circling the home planet i know but uh this is not the roberts court it formerly to always be known historically as the roberts court um this is the thomas alito court and wow, say, say that again, Justice, say yeah, that again. The, it just sounds so beautiful. <laughs> this is uh, this was an effort, as you said, Peter, by Chief Justice Roberts to form some kind of compromise. He tried it at oral argument. He said, we're not going to overrule Roe today, but we will allow states to ban abortion after 15 weeks, which is pre-viability. That was the standard from Roe. Uh, he tried it again. If you look at the opinions, he issued a separate opinion saying, that's what I would like to do. He got zero takers. Uh, no, none of the three liberal justices who issued an extraordinarily three justice uh, dissent, which is unusual, uh, nor uh, any of the justices in the majority joined him. And so Chief Justice Roberts, uh, he was rendered irrelevant, actually in this case but he's the, all, he's the, the decision is six three he did vote with the majority so we have a six three rather than a five four decision what you would say strictly is he had he voted to uphold the mississippi law but he did not join the reasons that the court gave so he had he, he has a little delicate balance he his, the only thing that he says counts here is his vote he does not uh, he specifically says he doesn't want to join the majority's opinion on the law 
Okay. So, uh, sorry, I just, I don't want to get hung up on this, but you know where I'm going. We've moved right, for, right from law to politics. We are going to see a lot of mostly peaceful protests beginning this weekend would be my guess. And what I want to know is whether the opposition can legitimately claim that this decision was narrow, that it was 5-4. Uh, you, you could say the reasoning is narrow in terms of the votes, in terms of what the opinion says is extremely broad. And in that sense, it's uh, a twin to the gun case yesterday, which was also extremely broad. And uh, when I actually, when I saw the gun case come out yesterday, I knew they were going to overturn Roe and stick to their guns because the opinions read the same. Could oh. you just explain for me the difference between when you're, ma you're making a distinction and I'm confused. So it, it's a, a, a narrow vote five, five to four, but you're saying actually it's broad. It, what's the, Explain it to me. Uh, I always have these difficult students in class. Yeah. But <laughs> make you make you make sense. Yeah. I'm, we're but still I'm listening. We're, very good description of Brother Rob. He is a difficult student. We are still doing the we're still doing Yale University's remedial work here. But <laughs> <laughs> this is how as I said, the vote. So this is actually, as Peter says, the difference between politics and law. The politics of it are the votes are five, one, three. There's five votes, no hedge hemming, hawing, five clear, full joins to Justice Alito's right. opinion, which looks very much like the draft that was leaked. Uh, so you could say in terms of votes, that's narrow. Chief Justice Roberts is voting along with them because the court's action is to uphold the Mississippi law. But you could say, as Peter did, uh, but the vote's tenuous, because if one of those justices, say Justice Kavanaugh, had bent the knee to all the external pressure and gone off with Chief Justice Roberts, then Roe would not have been overturned. The reason I'm saying it's broad is that the, the opinion itself, the reasons the court gives for why Roe is overturned are extremely broad. There's no wiggle room anymore. The Supreme Court is no longer going to decide abortion issues. Everything is returned to the states. The court says a state can now ban abortion completely. It could uh, ban abortion. Ex explain, and give the no rational, explain the rational basis test. Uh, can I just say, it, it, this is the other remarkable thing. It doesn't, um, the court doesn't provide any exceptions for rape, incest, or life of the mother. That's uh, extraordinary. That means all of abortion issues are returned back to the states. The, the only test the court's going to apply is that it's the same test that it generally applies to most laws, which is called the rational basis test, which just says, could a state have a logical or rational uh, explanation for why it passed a law? Uh, only one law has ever failed that test and been struck down by the court, and that's the ban on gay marriage that some of the states enacted. Uh, so this, in fact, the court's opinion gives plenty of reasons why a state might want to ban abortion because it talks actually at great length about why states could believe uh, that a fetal life is worth protecting even before viability and says that's a decision for states to make. Uh, the other thing that remained attacked from the opinion that goes to this rational basis question is that um, the court goes to great length and Justice Kavanaugh uh, wrote separately to emphasize this too, that this case does not touch the gay marriage cases, doesn't touch the contraceptive cases, and earlier cases that do, you know, f identify a right to privacy, even though it's not mentioned in the text but, of the but Constitution. But Thomas does. Thomas, Thomas yeah, does. Thomas yes. said that. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> but well, you guys, you guys, unlike my students, did all the reading <laughs> in class. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, explain what Thomas exactly. meant. Because what we're, so, we're getting what we're getting on Twitter is this is now the end of the yes. contraceptions and same-sex marriage, uh, because that's what they want to do. Where, where it seems to me that they're just saying this basis on which these things have been have been decided is erroneous, is false. We have to look at them again through a different prism. It doesn't mean that they want to overturn them. It just means they want a rational, grounded foundation for them, as opposed to the castle in the air that they built before. Does that seem about right? Yes, I think Thomas does take a little issue with Justice Alito's opinion. You know, Justice Alito, uh, you know, he's trying to build a majority, which he did for this opinion. So he wanted to say. Uh, you can go with me on this train, overturning road. Doesn't mean you're going on for the whole voyage of overturning gay marriage, contraceptives. You could go back farther to a right to teach your children certain languages and so on. So this right to privacy that has uh, come into fruition, started around the 1920s and really it, you know, is the root of all these cases. Uh, but Thomas says, and I think he's right. But he's not being very politic. He says, well, what is logic the logic? Yeah, that's true. he says the logic that we apply apply today. Well, that means those cases don't make sense either. And he's saying in the future, I would reexamine all those cases. But James mm -hmm. is right. He says, I'm not saying we should overrule Obergefell and you know the contraceptive cases uh, and so on. But he's saying they might have other you know roots in the Constitution. There may be other reasons those laws are. Uh, those decisions are constitutional, but he says, I wouldn't uh, continue to justify them on the same grounds that we have justified Roe. But I don't think he has a, I don't think Justice Thomas has uh, a majority support for that. I think Justice Kavanaugh actually wrote specially to say, I think those cases are still uh, good law and, and it's still precedent. And Justice Alito does. As a matter of legal reasoning, John, who has the more persuasive case on that point? Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, who say this is, we're talking here about abortion and abortion only. There is nothing in the logic that we use that even begins to undermine the uh, rationale for the other decisions. Or Justice Thomas, who says, oh, come on, fellas. This rationale, who says A must say B. The thinking here applies to the other cases as well. Whether you want to admit it or not, someday, sometime, somehow, Somebody's going to raise these questions. Who has the better case? I'm not talking politics or who has a majority. I'm talking who has the better case. No, in the in the terms of ideas, I think most people who study these issues would agree with Justice Thomas. Even if you were a liberal, there are some very famous liberal critics of Roe, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg before she right. went on the Supreme Court, or Larry Tribe, or John Hart Ely. They all very critical of this idea. It, it, very briefly, I don't want to bore people. The, the idea is. There's a due process clause which says you cannot be deprived of your life, liberty, or property without due process of law create any rights other than you get to have due process before the government takes those things away from you. And so the, where the court made them error in Justice Thomas's mind was to say that clause actually gives you all kinds of substantive rights, not just the right to a fair process before, say, you uh, are put to death for committing capital murder. But there might actually be a right in there, too. It doesn't make sense as a matter of logic and language. But Justice Thomas believes that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which has been uh, read to nothingness by this current by the court, uh, might actually be the source for these kinds of rights. But the courts never explored it 
And so, and one other thing about why Justice Thomas has these views, I, you know, as you all know, I clerk for Justice Thomas. Uh, I'm not trying to toot his horn, uh, well, not excessively, uh, but I do think that um, Justice Thomas does not believe in precedent at all. I don't think this is a surprise for someone who actually lived for a part of his life under Plessy versus Ferguson. <laughs> so, right. you know, he, right. Right, he benefited right. from the fact that the Brown versus Board court did not believe in precedent either. So he he would say, yeah, all those cases don't make sense. I'm gonna I would toss them, but Kavanaugh John, and John Alito he said don't agree. Justice Thomas Justice Thomas said in public under your questioning on this show that got this. I have this reputation excerpted. for engaging in unpleasant questioning, but it's not yes, true. Yes, exactly. No. In any event, <laughs> Justice Thomas I'm said, not true. You'll, re you'll remember this. this. If this isn't a quotation, it's a close <clears throat> paraphrase. You asked about stare decisis, and he said, you only argue stare decisis when you don't have any good arguments. Well, that it, was a breathtaking uh, thing for a justice to say, and that was in public. Of course, he was talking to you. People's reason sometimes departs them. <laughs> now he i think he's been very upfront about that that yep. he's less motivated by precedent but and this is uh, you know rob's old college classmate you know brett kavanaugh was the key in all of this if you want to talk about the right. politics of the court i think a lot of this pressure that was put on him put on the court on the outside was on Justice kavanaugh i think chief justice roberts was putting a lot of pressure on justice kavanaugh and justice kavanaugh does care about precedent he, you know, this separate opinion he also, you know, he issued today talks about, well, I believe in precedent. It's very important. This is why Roe doesn't benefit from stare decisis. But if there was any justice who might have gone along with Chief Justice Roberts, it was Kavanaugh. So if, even though I sometimes criticize his, you know, jurisprudence, I am I'm very proud of Brett Kavanaugh, too, because he didn't give in to that pressure and did what he thought was right. And then that's. Uh, that's harder to do than you think, even though those justices have lifetime tenure and, you know, their pay can never right. go down and they're never up they're for re-election. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so I think Justice Kavanaugh uh, in particular uh, showed uh, unusual courage today. John, I know we want to touch on, it's been a big week. This case, of course, people will be writing dissertations about this case alone for decades to come. You and Richard Epstein will be recording a law talk. We're just Teeing up cases here. Just by the way, sort of I need to. I want to collect from Richard because we bet a dollar on the law talk about whether Roe versus Wade be overturned. So I have my dollar here. You can't see it, but that's it. One dollar. Richard you? owes me one dollar. The first oh, I time I've ever won a bet. I'm expecting my. But as I said earlier, because of Biden inflation, I have now produced a five dollar bill. I'm expecting Richard to hand over $5. Well, that's, you're not going to get that from Richard. He's very so, much so in the terms. John, before we go to other cases, if yeah, I may, I just, just, just on the, just to return to, to, to Dobbs itself for a moment, could I just read you a couple of headlines? We have here the New York Times at this very hour. Excuse me, here, this is the lead. It's not the headline, it's the lead. The Supreme Court on Friday overruled Roe versus Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to abortion. On the website of the Wall Street Journal at this very hour, Roe v. Wade overturned, Supreme Court ends constitutional right to abortion. Now, strictly speaking, isn't it the case, uh, two comments, one is, isn't it the case that it didn't end a constitutional right? It said that we were all under a legal illusion. There is no such right and never has been. B, 
couldn't you write a headline? Wouldn't a fair headline also have been, excuse me, wouldn't a fairer headline have been, Supreme Court returns the question of abortion to the democratic process? Yes, both true. Uh, you could say, you could easily say the headline could be Supreme Court corrects 50-year-old error. Right. Because that's what it said it was doing. It said we were wrong. Uh, and the court actually explains a great, like much of the opinion explains why no constitutional right to abortion had ever existed before Roe. And in fact, if anything, the states had primarily sought to criminalize it. And, you know, why the founder, the founders and the framers of the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment did not think there was any right to abortion in the Constitution either. So you could say in a way, like I say, abortion becomes a right like most other rights. It's up to our legislatures and governors to decide whether to expand those rights. And what happened today was that the Supreme Court restored the Rob Long rule of democracy. This goes to the states, and it is now up to Americans of either side of this question to persuade their neighbors. This is a mo this is a kind of great. I, I mean, I hate to use Obama-like language, but it is a kind of healing, constitutional healing. This is restoring the democratic pro. We're going to be in for uh, my hunch is that we're in for a summer of love. Not this is going. This could get rough. This could <laughs> really. Get rough what planet are you living wow. on? <laughs> I don't know. I, you can't hear the helicopters breaking, outside breaking my house. Right, <laughs> breaking right now. DC police are on apparently on yeah. full alert, full mobilization. Same, yeah. Same in New York. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so I, I got. I, can I just I, go uh, ahead, Rob? I think partly that's true. I mean, I, I, it is. I think the irony here is that we're going to suddenly be Americans are suddenly going to be interested in local government where they haven't been before. I mean, the LA Times might actually reopen their Sacramento bureau for the first time. No, states day, will matter you know, again. People, states will matter again, um, and all that's useful. Isn't it also possible that we've just taken an argument that's gotten even more complicated since 1972, thanks to ultrasounds and viability world, rules, et cetera. And we've taken it out of the deep freeze at the most complicated time you could imagine. I mean, the, we, the right to privacy, we can all agree. Is, I mean, I don't know we can't all agree, but I think, John, you and I agree. The, the finding of the right to privacy within this sort of 1972 road decision is just kind of weird, right? Um, and kind of like... Um, specious you don't have a right to privacy to do a whole bunch of things um but as some states may be going to sort of not viability i mean dobbs doesn't dobbs says 15 weeks but just say it's by just say it's moment of conception you do get into privacy arguments don't you i mean what happens in the first two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? What happened four weeks ago? What happened five weeks ago? I mean, you, there's, there's, it is possible that we could revisit this issue and be using some of the same terms and legal arguments just applied in a different situation. Or am I just kind of no. fantasizing about an extremely complicated future, no. which I'm not against, by the way, but um, it's just what it seems like to me, right? No, I, I think that's right, Rob. In fact, uh, okay, so I was saying the opinion was very broad, but you could also read it as an expression of modesty. The court doesn't think it can make those tough decisions anymore. All those factors you just laid out, right. Rob, should, do women have a right to privacy at one week, two weeks, four weeks? When does the interest of protecting the life of the fetus come in? Right. The court used to think it had the sort of philosopher king ability to make that decision for 330 million Americans. And now right. it's basically saying, 
those are policy questions. Those are questions that, you know, you guys decide, you Americans decide that you figure that out. We're just judges. The law can't give you the answer to that. That's balancing a lot of like, in fact, the opinion that the court really relies on here is about euthanasia. Another Mm. case where the court said, we're not going to create a federal right for you to kill yourself. We will let the states decide that. It's a similar idea. There's so many conflicting Mm -hmm. moral views, conflicting values in all of these life and death questions. The court says we are not going to be in the business. I was also mentioned the death penalty is another one where the court has said the same thing. And they're saying, right. But eventually you know, they're the going to have to the rule on some of the world. They're going to have to decide this. Right. <laughs> uh Oh, but eventually they're going to have to. I was with you right up I mean, until that moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, you know, really, as you know, I'm not, um, I didn't pass the bar in California. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, few do. So, so, right. So um, it is possible to make it. I mean, it is going to be a little thorny, right? Um, uh, someone from Mississippi drives to somewhere and gets an abortion and comes back. Um, you're not wherever they go, just whatever that neighborhood state is, Florida, say, it's fine. And then they come back to Mississippi and it's not fine. Um, that's going to be an issue. Um, you know, if I commit murder in New Jersey, they don't try me in New York. They try me in New Jersey. Um, mm-hmm. Obergefell, you could overturn it, but you're going to have a whole bunch of, I mean, if I get married, uh, you know, a, a gay married in New York, um, that's the contract that's got to apply if I move to, you know, Alabama, right? Although so, gay, gay people marry for looks too, Rob, so don't get your hopes up. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand that. Um, <laughs> it's only about money. Uh, all, so, my, so my question is, like, we, we are about to have, and I think this is not a bad thing, um, we are about to put all of our legislators to work. Mm-hmm. And that may be a good thing. I mean, right now they're engaged in a lot of nonsense. I mean, if I was a Democrat today, just just go with me and tell me if I'm full of it politically. And I'm talking about expanding the court. Well, there's one way to expand the court, and that's to win the Senate back. And the best way to win the Senate back is to stop right. being so weird, right? Is to moderate. That's how you win the Senate. Um, is that it, it? It feels to me like even the application of this decision is going to have beneficial effects. You know, uh, Rob, you can, I, I want to put up, create a game jersey for you because you are on Team Madison, player number one, because right. you just, you just, Wait, what on am James I, chopped Mad- liver? <laughs> oh, you're team whatever. You're still he gets on number bench. one. <laughs> you're still a sub. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, because you just gave the explanation that James, that's James Madison's hope for our country was that we would have this federal system, you know, we would have states and it would be, Right, the expansive large republic, and he thought that you know you have all these centers of power, all these legislators, all these states. It would help diffuse conflict. Right, it would help bring down the temperature, as it were. People right. would be able to make local decisions, and it would actually prevent the nationalization and polarization of everyone trying to kill each other over red versus green or whatever you want to right. fight over, and make it a. Uh, Right, loser take. I mean, winner take all fight at the national level, and so that's the hope. I, I now the court's interest in court says we have no idea what's going to happen in the politics. It's not our job anymore to be worrying about this. Unlike the past Supreme Court, the past Supreme Court in Casey, about ten years ago. I'm sorry, twenty, uh, thirty years ago, 1992, the court upheld Roe, and they said we're trying to end 
the conflict. We are going to heal the land and our decision will reduce political fighting. It actually had right. a reverse effect. Um, yeah, maybe that's what happens, Rob. I mean, I, that's what has happened with lots of other issues in American politics. You know, euthanasia did go back to the states and didn't become a great political issue. Um, the death penalty, too, has been at the states. It's not a national issue the way it was in the 70s. Maybe that's the hopeful story here. Is you that think the that, same I, thing, I know we want to move on, but just one more question, because you've been inside that court and you know those a lot of those people. I know they're like my same age, like classmates and people I went to school yeah. with. I'm you, getting where old. have you like you're just sitting there and like, yeah, I don't know. They're they're I don't know. Like, I'm a professor, so I always sit back and go, Well, those guys are working for a living. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, they got up a little earlier and they did the reading. That's why they're there. Um so uh uh what's the mood? I mean, th- this has gotta be the most I can't think of a, a more controversial and unpopular right in a lot of ways decision um what are they thinking like uh hey it's too early but you're welcome america uh we're going to give you back your uh the the way the government's supposed to work or are they kind of hunkering down and thinking let's all go away for the summer and 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 we create a big mess let's run away from it yeah, we should. You're starting to get mysterious Airbnb rentals by uh, unnamed people from <laughs> yeah, Washington yeah, D.C. Right. all around the country. <laughs> but I actually think uh, they might at first be looking at themselves and saying, maybe the first thing we can do uh, is heal the courts. Everybody knows, you know, from Robert Bork on, every confirmation of every Supreme Court justice has really been about Roe versus Wade, and they've all been Correct. about. Correct. What are you really going to do? That's why there's so much yeah, questioning right. about precedent and outright questions. What are you going to do about Roe versus Wade? Okay. So uh, maybe if the court gets out of this business, that part, at least one of the three branches can start to fix itself, that they can get back to decide. The thing that's interesting about these opinions, too, is they explain how the Roe versus Wade question distorted so many other areas of the right. Constitution. Right. Because if you lined up four against Roe, it would cause you to vote in other certain other ways on other important legal questions. Uh, so maybe that's one. And then I think, yeah, I think the second thing is the court might be saying here, because here's the example that they have on their minds is Dred Scott. Now, I don't want right. to go back into far history, but they, their Dred Scott was another case, the slavery question being worked out by Congress, by the states. The Supreme Court, Chief Justice Tiny said, no, we're going to decide abortion once, I mean, sorry, slavery Mm. once and for all. We will end it, and then it will no longer be a source of division. And instead, they made it worse. And so this is almost as if the court's trying to learn that lesson from the the antebellum period and say, no, we will remove ourselves from this equation, give politics a chance to breathe, and for the American people to figure out their own solution without it being opposed by a five-justice majority. So maybe that's what they're saying. So I don't think they're saying, you're America, you're welcome. But maybe they're saying, (laughs) you know, maybe this is the start. At least we can fix our own clean, you know, fix affairs in our own house. And then that can be the first step towards. And can I say that this, the opinions in their own way are a good example of what Americans might do is because even the dissent, you're, you're, you're right, Rob, this is the most consequential, most controversial decision by the Supreme Court in our lifetimes, I think, other than Brown. And um, even though the minute, unhappy, I'm, even, even I am not old enough to have been around for Brown. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so the, but the, the point is that you don't, um, 
even in the dissent, they're upset. They predict, you know, ruin. Right. But they still argue respectfully. They still argue within the bounds of good faith. Maybe Americans can take a lesson from the opinions of the Supreme Court. And, and the majority is not accusing anyone, for example, of killing millions of babies. They're just saying, look, you made a mistake. We made a mistake and we're fixing it. It's so respectful and in good faith, despite all the turmoil Rob's talking about, the protests at the justices' houses and assassination attempt leaks right. on the leaks of the opinion. They've been through uh, the worst, I think, the, you know, the worst attacks on the institution since FDR tried to pack the court. And they came through it still maintaining respect and good faith argument. Maybe that'll have an effect on the country, too, I hope. John, we've just got a sentence or two on these two other on any other day, either one of the other two decisions that came to two big decisions that came down this week. We'd be talking about as historic in them in their own right. Dobbs is so huge that it's compressed our discussion of these other two cases to we you you have to run I know. In any event, we've got New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And then we've got the Macon case which was a uh, a school choice and freedom of religion case, which came down earlier in the week. Let's start with New York State Rifle. I happen to know, because I was on a text thread yesterday, that Professor Yu considered the decision in New York State Rifle more than any conservatives had even dared to hope. What was the case? What was the decision? Why, why did it take even you? Spelled both ways, by surprise. <laughs> so the case is, can New York State, consistent with the Second Amendment, uh, place very high restrictions on who's allowed to carry a gun outside their house? So in New York, you had to basically show good cause why you should be allowed to have a gun in order to get a permit. Uh, and effectively, you had to show why your life might be under some kind of threat. To get a permit. It's similar law in California and I think Illinois. So a lot of the country's population lives under this kind of law. So why it's remarkable is every court that looked at these questions before said, we're going to have a balancing test. We're going to balance you know, your right to have a gun versus why does the state want to restrict your right? Uh, and so that led to almost in the years since uh, the Second Amendment was found to have an individual rights component. Uh, Almost every handgun restriction in every state was upheld in the lower courts. And so the Supreme Court, using the same logic as it does in Dobbs, said, nope, New York's law struck down and we are going to reconceptualize how we think about the Second Amendment. And the, the main line is the Second Amendment is no longer a second class right. We're going to use the same way we protect free speech and religion or Miranda warnings and so on, uh, we're going to give those same protections to the right to bear arms. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, that, that's actually much more than most conservative legal scholars thought the court would do yes, this week. Uh, it, it actually brings into doubt many, many restrictions on the carrying and use of firearms. It, mm. The court... Uh, uh, doesn't say this explicitly, but some of the concurring justices do, and I think it's right, is it still means that uh, you, know, you can restrict having guns in certain places like government buildings and schools. It still means you can bar felons from having guns. It still means that you can have background checks. 
But the court's not going to allow unusual burdens to be placed on uh, guns. And this is, and let me just end with this. This is the most important part of it is uh, the court said this is fundamental to what's to be an American in a way, which was in the Second Amendment until this week, the government would say to us, prove to us why you should have a gun. And the court says that's not what it means to be an American. It means you have the right first, and then the government has to prove why they get to restrict it. That's, uh, you know, the Europeans uh, would have no mm-hmm. idea what that means. Right. <laughs> right? There was a, or you know, people in the rest of the world would be like, what are you talking about? Uh, but the court says that's the nature of a constitutional right is you have the right. You're, the presumption is in liberty. You exercise it. And then if the government wants to try to limit your right, it has to give reasons to the courts and generally have a good reason. You can't just arbitrarily take away your rights. And so the court said that's the rule we're going to apply from now on. Um, that's a I, that is a remarkable that's a revolution um, almost important as the cases from 20 years ago that first said that there is an individual right to bear arms because that, right that has decision pretty there's this yeah that decision was written by mr justice thomas here's the earlier the uh, carson v macon which was written by the chief justice maine i'm going to try to summarize the facts really quickly here Oh, no, forget it. You're the professional. Summarize the facts. Why did that one matter? Why are so many people saying, wait a minute, this is a big opening for religion to creep back into schools. That's what the left is. Go ahead. Well, they don't have, they're going to be worrying about other things now. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact, Um, the facts in the decision and why it matters. But uh, actually that of of these three cases, that one is the least revolutionary uh, because Uh, you could tell for sure this is where the court was going and has been going for about 10, 15 years. This is one of the signal uh, and signal moves of Chief Justice Roberts and the court is to allow churches and religious groups that participate in public life uh, as other groups do and not to be singled out for exclusion from the public square. This is a case where I, I've, ne- I've never been to Maine. I know Rob, you know, this is one of Rob's hunting grounds, Maine. He loves Maine. So Maine is <laughs> like much of New England so sparsely settled, no one wants to live there, That's that true. there aren't enough people to set up high schools in Maine. It's really quite amusing. Like, I think they said half the counties or something in Maine. Does Maine have more than one county? I don't even know. It's so small. But they say half of Maine doesn't have enough density of population for there to, to make sense to build a high school. So instead, what Maine would do is they would give families the money to send their kid to school instead. And then Maine said, but you can't use the money at a religious school. And so the court said, as it has said in other contexts, uh, when the government sets, gives money to families and they choose where to spend the money, then the decision is up to them. The government's not blessing religion. And they also said there are other programs where the government gives out money. Uh, And the court said when the government decides to give out money, they can't single out religious groups and exclude them from you know, participating. They're just groups just like any other groups. And so that that one was actually an easy one. I'm actually surprised people are making these kind of claims because the court decades ago decided um, school vouchers and said school vouchers can be used at religious schools. So, uh, you know, the idea of the government giving money to religious schools is, you know, that's that's old news. It's just you can't give them directly and only to religious schools. You give them as part of a general program. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been quite a week with amazing decisions, and uh, stay tuned because I believe at 4.30 they're going to issue another opinion and strike down the basis for the entire regulatory state.
So, I'm sign me up. Yeah. That's yeah. next year. That's next year. How about that <laughs> fundamental transformation they were talking about? Just not the sort that they perhaps had imagined. John, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon about uh, something or other. And uh, it was good to talk to you. Right, uh, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Uh, th thanks for filling in, John. You're always useful on a slow yeah. news day. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been sitting here periodically opening and closing my window because I've got trucks going by, I've got planes going by, and you're thinking, wait a minute, why don't you uh, just uh, turn on the air conditioning and close your window? That's because it's broken, and it's been broken for days. It's been 95 degrees, and they won't fix it until it's until it's until it's cool upstairs apparently it's dangerous for them to go upstairs and install an air conditioner unit i'm like a you know soviet officer at stalingrad i'm saying i'm up the hill one drops the next should go in but no i gotta wait for them to fix it the good thing is though is that when i go to sleep it, that's when i get comfortable finally because I got the bowl and branch. Yes, bowl and branch. These sheets aren't just buttery and breathable and impossibly comfortable. No, they get softer with every wash. Uh, you, you may ask, what's the thread count? Forget your thread count. Bowl and branch gives you thread quality because it doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. Now, I mentioned that it's hot. And, you know, you can talk about uh, the sheets are cool in the summer and hot in the winter and all the rest of it. But you really have to lose your AC and spend some nights with these sheets to understand how good they are. And I can appreciate them now even more than I did even last week because I've got the signature hemmed sheets from Bowling Branch. They're bestseller for a good reason. Bowling Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. The sheets are made with threads so luxurious they're beloved by at least, as far as we know, three U.S. presidents. And they feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable, so they're perfect for every season. Trust me. They didn't acquire over 10,000 stellar reviews for no reason. Now, when you got the best sheets on the market, people notice. They're so confident that you will love them. Bolton Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and free returns on all orders. I think they do that because they know that nobody is ever going to send these back once they get a night on. So head on over to Bolin Branch to get your total sleep satisfaction. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code Ricochet at BolinBranch.com. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com, promo code Ricochet. And we thank Bolin Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Joining us now is our friend Ian Rowe, who is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is also, let me tell you this, Ian is among many other attainments, a graduate of Harvard Business School. And I'm saying that because what that implies is he could be out making big bucks in the financial district on the island of Manhattan. And instead, what he is doing is running a, a group of charter schools in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side. And that is because Ian Rowe is a good man. He has just published a new book called Agency. Ian, welcome. Peter, it is so great to see you. I have been looking forward to this conversation. Okay, so the book in a moment, but first, what on earth are you <laughs> thinking? You could be down there right, in the right. that big, beautiful Goldman Sachs Tower, or you could be there with Morgan State. You could be right there in Midtown or the Financial District, pulling down huge bucks, and instead, you have chosen to lead your life very substantially in the South Bronx. How come? Wow. Well, if you want to connect it to Harvard Business School, <clears throat> my, you know, my philosophy on these kinds of things, if one gets such a great education, that isn't constraining where you must go do things like work on Wall Street. In fact, it's actually liberating because you now have the you, you always have your uh, 
fallback plan. So when I graduated from Harvard Business School, I went to work for Teach for America in its early, early days for $25,000 a year. What, where did you said, teach? Oh, it, that was when it was. So I wasn't a teacher. I was actually helping run the organization okay. those days when when, uh, frankly, we didn't even know if we'd make payroll um, every two weeks. But we put an incredible foundation into that organization. And, you know, now TFA has placed tens of thousands of teachers. It's got more than a hundred million dollar budget. But yeah, well, thank you, Peter, for that. I, I've always um, felt if I could use my talent in such a way that would accrue to the benefit of young people who didn't get the opportunities that I had yet, and yet I feel a great kindred spirit with those kids, why not? And uh, that's honestly been the whole course of my career for the last 30 plus years. Hey, can we talk a little bit about the, uh, about your path? Yeah. Um, I, I, I just want to say before I did, I went to, um, on, I think it was, it was last night, two nights ago, I went down to the village underground, the comedy cell, the village underground about four blocks from my house. And I saw Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and they yeah. do this thing. They sit there, they tell jokes, they tell stories and they bring some comedians on. It's bizarre, but it's really great. And <laughs> you were named checked about 10 times. No. Uh, yes. They, uh, but so, but I guess what I want to know is that how did you get to the point where you're running a charter school? Like what? And, and I'll give you my priors because my theory is that you had some experience in the real world running a business or in business or something like that, that caused you to turn those talents to administering and coming up and running schools and that that makes you different. Um, well, you know, I have had a few epiphany moments uh, in my mm -hmm. life. Probably the first one, the most indelible one, was actually at 12 years old, far before Harvard Business School, far, and probably why I went to work for Teach for America after Harvard Business School. And it's connected to my parents. You know, my parents are, uh, came to this country from Jamaica, West Indies. They came in the mid-1960s uh, at a time when there was obviously, you know, intense racial strife in our country. A lot of um, factors that might make two Black parents and their kids not come to this country. And yet they believed in the American dream. You know, they, they had a sense that this could be a great country for them, for their two children. The Civil Rights Act had just passed, the Voting Rights Act. So they came and my dad became one of the first black engineers at IBM. My mom started working at Manufacturers Hanover Trust. Anyway, so we, we, they created a life for me and my brother. We moved to Brooklyn and then we ultimately moved to Queens. And this is where the epiphany moment occurred that I think would link to help answer your question. So I was going to junior high school, 231. Laurelton was a predominantly um, Jewish and Italian, predominantly white community. And yet it was becoming slowly racially integrated. More black folks were moving in. And unfortunately, a number of incidents started occurring in my junior high school um, to the point where the school board said, wow, we have to solve this problem. And so they decided to create an annex, another junior high school building in Rosedale, Queens, which was a few miles away, mm -hmm. but in a more permanently um, uh, white part of town. And essentially, all the white parents in our school took their kids out and moved them to the annex in Rosedale, leaving junior high school, wow. junior high school 231, an all black segregated school. And Separate my parents, but equal in Queens. Unbelievable. Equal, well, yes. And, and, and 
my parents, you know, on the premise that where the white kids go, that's where there's going to be a better education. We're going to take me out of my school as well. And the Sunday night before the Monday, the Monday morning where we had to issue the transfer papers with my dad in his recliner and my mom on her sofa, I did the unthinkable. I challenged my parents. <laughs> I, I, I begged them. No, seriously, I begged and cried. I remember this moment where why does my school have to be worse? I love my teachers. Just because everyone that's left is black doesn't mean that it has to be bad. You know, it's just weird. Like, I'd never stood up to my parents about anything. Like, my parents would crawl through broken glass for my brother and me. Mm. And yet there was something about this moment that didn't feel right. And I, and I begged and I cried and I pleaded. And they ultimately acquiesced. And they said, okay. And I, I couldn't believe it. Because I had never really asked my parents for anything of, 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 of significance. And they granted me permission to do something that they did not want to do. And I'm convinced that that moment, I felt, mm -hmm. I may not have called it then, but this sense of agency, that if there was something really right. important to me, I could influence it. It also influenced my belief that regardless of the demographic makeup of any institution, that should have no relationship to the expectations associated with what that organization can do. So that, that happened at 12 years old. And I'm convinced all the decisions, Harvard Business School, going to work for a nonprofit, even running charter schools later on, because I know a lot of kids who are in conditions that unless there was an intervention like me or, or a school like mine, or that their path could have been extremely different. And uh, so I think that's what that's uh, that's what that's part of my path. <laughs> yes. All right. The book is called Agency. The byline is the four point plan, F-R-E-E, -E, for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. Um, I heard that word a lot. Glenn Lowry uses it a lot. John McWhorter uses it a lot. A lot of people use it a lot. Agency is a kind of a taking back of decision making power away from a bureaucrat and to a parent is that am i that's one way to think about it in education but how would you describe the word agency has a you know if um if i'm a progressive social scientist or progressive politician and i hear a black man say agency i get like you're a conservative i don't like it why mm. do i have that reaction if i'm a progressive well, I mean, I'm happy to hear, by the way, that you say you hear the word agency. I, hear, I presume you hear the word equity far more than you hear uh, well, agency. <laughs> in, in, in other, yes, that's very true. That's very true. And the well, tell I, me the difference. Right. The reason I draw that contrast is that in, in today's world, the word equity, and by the way, when I went to Harvard Business School, the word equity had, had great meaning. <laughs> it, it, it meant that you had the opportunity to take ownership in an enterprise with unlimited potential. It was very, it, it was, it was boundless in what this word equity represents right. today. It actually means much more of a zero sum game around identity groups where equity is in practical terms, often a forced set of equal outcomes. If you are unhappy with disparities by identity group, right. by contrast, agency is my framework for this idea of boundless opportunity at the individual level, 
provided that you were getting the kinds of supports from core institutions that I call free, family, religion, education. And if you get those three, entrepreneurship is, is much more within your grasp. So I'm actually trying to push back hard on this idea of equity being the goal that we all seem to be striving for. But you're almost alone in that, right? I mean, if I'm a young person, and I mean, even if I go to one of your schools, I am, if I'm watching TV, if I'm in the culture, every single message that he or she is getting from the New York Times and from television, from Hollywood and from everywhere else is, you don't stand a chance. It's all stacked yeah. up against you. Well, that's it. I mean, I, you know, in my book, I write about these two narratives, um, these two meta narratives. First, I call blame the system and the other is blame the victim. In the blame the system narrative, that goes like what you're talking about. You know, if you're not achieving the American dream, right. it's because America is systemically oppressive based on your race, your class, your gender, your gender identity, something about you is making the whole system rigged against you. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. These systems are so discriminatory, so rigged that you're helpless. You know, you don't have the ability without some massive government intervention. But on the other side, I'll also say though, there's what I call the blame the victim narrative, which says if you're not successful in the country, it's not America that's the problem, you're the problem. It's some pathology that you have. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And of course, you know, so you're the architect of your own failure, of course, ignoring the fact that if you're a 12 year old kid and you weren't born into a stable family, or if you don't have a strong faith commitment or support, or if you haven't had access to great schools because of a lack of school choice, then it's really hard to pull up, pull yourself up by the, your bootstraps. So these two narratives, to your point, I think, add up to a singular lie that make it so that a lot of young people don't believe that they do have a shot. And so I've mm. written agency is what I hope to be an empowering framework that is within your grasp. It is within your grasp as a young person. The book again is agency. And by the way, Ian, I'm I'm really, thank you so much for explaining that incident with your parents, because now I understand you have spent the rest of your life overachieving just to prove to your mom and dad <laughs> you were right. Now I get it. It's, you know, skid in the game is important. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. So I agree. Uh, here's the question. If a kid, if a kid is African-American and comes from a single parent family and is raised in a part of the country where they get a pretty steady diet. It's just in the air, this notion of victimhood. At, one, at what point does it become too late? Mm. You, can, you can take kids in, how early do you need to get a kid to save that kid's life in your schools? Wow. Um, okay. It's never too late. Because no it's matter never what, too late. Yeah. The, 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 the essence of life is that you never want to create the impression that once you've passed a certain point, um, you know, all hope is lost. So we can never rob anyone of that, even the, you know, the convicted criminal who's been, uh, you know, so it's never too late. That's the core message. But it certainly would be great if we could uh, help uh, young people not absorb that message. 
you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the author of the, um, the lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project, when talking about black kids, she wrote in an 8,000 word essay, she said, you know, there is nothing a black person can do. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can overcome, quote, 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote, if you want to improve economic outcomes. So for, for, black, for black people. So imagine, imagine if you are in a classroom with a teacher that's been inspired by the 1619 Project and brings that message into schools. You would feel like, what's the point of trying? Right. You know, we call it learned helplessness. And yet the irony is that Nicole Hannah-Jones, and by the way, more power to her, she's done all of those things in her own life to lead a quite prosperous life. Mm, you point. know, And if you look at data about poverty rates, the poverty rate for Black married couples has been in single digits for generations. So so clearly there are factors outside of race and i you know and i talk about those things a lot in my book that supersede whatever levels of racism or racial discrimination still exist in our society and so to me the message i want to impart to young people is are the institutions that if you embrace them what you can do what you can accomplish not these defeatist narratives that are so dominant today so i have I have just one more question that's re related to what you're talking about right now. What do the parents say to you? Take my kid and teach him how to survive in a racist America? What? How? This, uh, the name of the book is Agency. I want to say that over and over and over again. The author is Ian Rowe. The name of the book is Agency. And there are, there are two arguments in that book. One is that kids possess agency. Yes. And the other is that the United States of America is still a decent enough country that you can ex exercise your agency in this country and get ahead, right? Those that's are a, kind that's of a beautiful things. Yeah. So, so what do parents, what, what do the parents say to you? Take my kid into your school, please, and here's why. What would the why be? So parents enter our schools, you know, um, when I was running uh, my last network for last decade, you know, we, we accepted a couple of hundred kids into our schools per year, but we had nearly 5,000 on the wait list, right? And this is in wow. a district where District 8 in the South Bronx, where only 2% of kids that start ninth grade four years later graduate from high school ready for college, right? Meaning that they start ninth grade and drop out, or they actually do earn their high school diploma, but still can't do reading nor math without remediation if they were to go to college, right? So, so, that, so that's the backdrop of why when parents come to our schools, they are not looking for a set of theories about how, you know, the system's rigged against them or their kids or they've got no shot. They want us to teach them the pathways to success. What are the pathways to prosperity? So, for example, there's great data that says if a kid uh, finishes their high school degree, gets full-time job of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work, and if they have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that path of decisions avoid poverty and enter the middle class. When we tell parents, this is the kind of information we're going to be teaching your kids, not in a prescriptive fashion, you say you must do this, but to let them know 
about the different rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. Parents say, thank God someone is teaching that to my kids because I wish someone had taught me those things when I was much younger. And the reason this is important is that I often get a lot of pushback from what I call the gatekeepers, the elites, the adults who've empowered themselves to say that they are representing the interests of disadvantaged kids. You can't say this to these kids. You're imposing middle-class right. values. You know, you're insulting them because they may not have followed these decisions in their own life. Ignore the gatekeepers. When you speak to real people in communities that want to live the American dream, to know that it's still alive, that this is a good, if not great country, that's what they want to hear. Not a narrative that says their kids can't succeed. Um, okay, I know we got to let you go, but I got, I got one more question. I mean, I live in New York. You're running schools in the South Bronx and Lower East Side. Um, suddenly, you're in charge of it. What, is, what's, what are the what are the thing the first three things you do on your first day as schools are to fix it? So, well, that's a that's a that's a that's a big question. So, the first thing I do, I recognize that schools cannot solve all of these problems alone. There is the 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 reason I've written agency, and, and when I first wrote the book, I was pretty much only going to focus on education. But as a school leader, you are being dishonest if you don't recognize the factor that strong families play, that the absence of a strong faith commitment plays, and the absence of school choice. These are all interrelated if we're truly focused on human flourishing for the next generation. So if I was school czar, I guess I'd ask to be mayor. <laughs> no, you're in charge of the czar. You can do whatever you want. So I, I, you just mentioned school choice. So you mentioned gatekeepers, yeah. and that kind of goes into school choice. Yeah, by the way, in that district I just mentioned, where only 2% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college, well, because of a cap on charters, if you had an idea to start a great school, you couldn't do it because right now the policy bans new schools. So that's a, certainly an immediate policy lever. Let's eliminate the restrictions on school choice. That's one. Two, in the last couple of days, the Supreme Court ratified a decision that parents now have greater power to use their public dollars um, to be used at a religious school if they were to um, if, that, if that's what they believe would be most healthy for their own child. So I would try to do everything in my power to uh, empower mm -hmm. parents to be able to be able to choose the great um, schools for their kids. But I wouldn't let families and faith-based organizations off the hook. Because I think sometimes in our conversations, we put so much onus on school choice or the education system to say, well, solve it. And it's necessary, but not sufficient. Right. So you wrote a book called Agency. You run uh, a network of a charter schools, South Bronx, Lower East Side of Manhattan. You sound like an optimist. Optimism is a fundamental part of the human being. We need hope and agency over grievance and dependency. We will never... Um, inspire a rising generation to fulfill their greatest potential if we're constantly focused on all the things that are impeding their ability to have agency in their lives. Ian Rowe, the author of Agency, you know what you are, Ian? And, <laughs> and I, mean this, I mean this quite strictly. You are a great American. 
Oh, wow. And a bit of a nutcase. I still think you can <laughs> yeah, make yeah, you're in big trouble. <laughs> 20 times more money down at Goldman. <laughs> well, you know, it's just money. There's far greater <laughs> impact. No, seriously. There's far greater impact. You're making um, Rob's mind and my mind just explode. James may be with you know. on this, but... The dirty no. talk, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a lot of people with money that don't feel that they have agency in their lives. They actually feel pretty trapped. It's quite interesting right. that, that when you ask a lot of kids across race, across class, the levels of loneliness, isolation, depression, um, then these levels exist in places where there's lots of cash. But in the absence of strong families, strong faith-based commitment, strong access to schools, you know, we, we got to get back to basics. And, and we know a lot about human flourishing. Economic uh, stability is certainly one component. Mm -hmm. But if we focus only on that, I think we're missing out on what it means to lead a truly flourishing life. James? Terrell, I'm going to burst in here with the last question. Um, I've been just fascinated listening to the whole thing. But I am here in Minneapolis, which was the epicenter of the societal convulsions that we went through a couple of years ago, you may recall. You did a great piece in Newsweek magazine just out where you're talking about these, these, uh, these acts of performative allyship that we yeah. saw, these ceremonial almost uh, 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 things that people did to assure everybody else that they were good people and on the right side. And it rubbed you, it rated you the wrong way like I, you know and if you'd explain that exactly why are these people simply trying to swab uh, you know a mark on their door and say pass over i'm one of the good ones or do they believe that this is sufficient to do in order to affect change uh tell us why you 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 saw the people preening after the george floyd riots yeah and, uh, it kind of bugged you yeah so this is a fair question so you know yeah just not too far after the george floyd murder there was an incident in in bethesda maryland in a park where about a thousand predominantly white folks were gathered and they were all gathered in chants and their arms were raised to the sky and they were chanting, I will love my black neighbors just like I love my others. And, 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 and it was just this eerily symbolic thing where a lot of goodwilled people were trying to demonstrate that we're allies, we want the best for black people. And, you know, unfortunately, those kind of activities do nothing for the kids that go to my schools. That doesn't improve reading levels. And certainly, we all want all of us in our society to be rowing in the same direction, to believe in equal opportunity. So I'm not discounting the well-intentioned efforts or well-meaning. But when that's the extent of what we're talking about, um, you might actually start getting the impression like, well, we need more you know, in order for, for Black progress to be made, like we need more Black Lives Matters lawn signs on, on everyone's um, porch. And then, that, and, that, and then that's what demonstrates progress. And so I grow frustrated with that. And, and over the last two years, I've seen a lot of, you know, newspaper organizations are now capitalizing the B in Black and leaving the white, the W right. in white, lowercase. Like, that's nonsense. Like, why are we doing that? It's, it's purely for virtue signaling. The governor of Oregon a few months ago made the decision to eliminate, in, in order to help kids of color, to eliminate the requirement to demonstrate proficiency in math and reading in order to graduate from high school. What? How does lowering standards help anybody? And so these kinds of 
symbolic or destructive or corrosive actions, A, they're incredibly cynical, but more importantly, they either have zero impact or a worse or adverse impact on the, on the very kids that we're talking about. And by the mm-hmm. way, there are lots of kids of color that are doing just great. And there are lots of white kids that are not doing great. Mm-hmm. So maybe right. we should not make race the factor in a lot of these decisions that we're talking about. And also, maybe we need to move away from these symbolic acts and talk to young people about the real pillars that are much more likely related to having agency in your own life. Building strong families, having a strong faith commitment, exercising school choice. And if you got those three, then exercising entrepreneurship, not just business ownership or business or work, but having control of your life so that you're the problem solver, you're the architect. That's the real conversation I want to have. Not symbolic, you know, let's put a black square on Instagram. That does nothing. It says it says something about the the person who's doing it, not about the real impact for kids. You know, it's interesting. We had a big conversation about abortion in the first part of this podcast. And it, connecting that with what you said, it's as if people are panicked suddenly by the idea of devolving responsibility back to the individual. As though the mm. molecule frightens them. They want it all to be absorbed in some, uh, you know, some big blob that actually mm. makes that, that takes away their own agency. Because agency does imply that one is responsible, which for some is a horrifying idea. But agency is the name of your book, and the idea can be fleshed out there. And you know, to go back to what was said before, the more we talk about that, as opposed to equity, that term with a little slight of hand they've used to replace equality with agency is the uh, is, is what we have to look forward to yes. thank you very much Gene Roof, for your visit with us today um, write another book then we'll talk again okay <laughs> <laughs> thank you ian thank you guys ian thanks so much Bye. awesome peter good to see you give our give our love to the south bronx now at this point in the podcast, we usually break to tell you what a wonderful thing it is to get together with other Ricochet members and why you should join, because uh, we really took one in the shorts or in the neck, as they used to say back in the 40s. Took it in the neck. Yeah. Didn't in we the neck. Uh, we did. We uh, so the constant listeners to this podcast, and we hope that includes every single listener right now, uh, know that we had a little lawsuit trouble. You know, we kind of got on the wrong end of a... Um, of a very angry left winger. So we, and we pay. So uh, we have a little difficult financial moment and you can help. All you need to do is sign up for a ricochet membership. Look, we have uh, you know millions of listeners and we do not have millions of members and we would like to change that. So please join. If you ever wondered how you can help us, please go to ricochet.com, sign up, become a member. Memberships just start at $5 a month. Uh, you, you get to join in the conversation. You can start your own. We'd love to have you as a member of the club. Memberships start at just $5 a month. If you don't want to do that, but I really think you should, you know, hey, buy something from one of our sponsors. Every little bit helps. So go to Ricochet for more information. Hope to see you uh, in the pages of Ricochet. Also, for members, there are a couple upcoming meetups. As you know, this is Meetup Summer, IRL Ricochet. Uh, Timothy Landon is hosting a meetup this weekend. Uh, That's uh, June 25th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Matt Balzer has one set up for July 29 through the 31st, which would be fun, in Milwaukee. And that's continuous. uh, Nobody leaves the room. Nobody leaves the room. You're all locked in. It's got an escape room. Um, They're chatting a lot of fun, Milwaukee. And there's also uh, some planning for uh, meetups in August in Northern California and even Dublin, Ireland. So a lot's going on. You got to join Ricochet to check out the Ricochet meetup group for more details. We hope to see you there. We hope to see you in the pages. And of course, we hope to hear you 
or not hear you. We hope that you hear us uh, every week here as a member of Ricochet.com. Well, before we go, gentlemen, anything else? It's kind of hard to think of anything that really matches the issues we've been talking here today. <laughs> the trivial stuff seems incredibly trivial. Uh, I don't look forward to this, as a matter of fact. I mean, it's, you know, Rob was talking before about how we you now we're going to have the conversation, and this is what America is all about, et cetera. But we seem, as you pointed out, this is a really fraught time to have that conversation. I mean, before, when, when you were arguing about slavery, for example, you could argue, there was a thing about which you were arguing. Both sides recognize the thing, bond, human bondage, chattel slavery. When you can't even talk about the abortion issue because one side is seeing it primarily in, intensely, you, only to the prism of women's control over their own bodies, and the other side is seeing it primarily as a matter of life, where do you find the middle ground on that to, uh, to have the, the civil sane discussion? Are we going to find out? Or we just, I mean, you're right. It was frozen and everybody kind of liked it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because we didn't, we didn't have to grapple. And now we got to grapple. Now we have to grapple. Now we have to do yeah. democracy. Actually, we mistimed it. Like the court mistimed it. If they timed it perfectly, they would have set this up so that this would have been our last show before the 4th of July weekend. <laughs> because I, I, I'm with, this is between the court's decisions especially Dobbs, which reaffirm democracy and saddle us with a duty that should have been ours all along, which is to convince our neighbors. And Ian Rowe, between that and Ian Rowe, what a story! What a story! Right. They, they are starting connected, schools and they are connected. They're all connected. Look what you can do in this country. Look what you can do in this country. Even the, the burned out, impoverished, written off neighborhood of the South Bronx. Look what you can accomplish. Only in America. Yeah, it's sort of like that moment when you, uh, you know, have your first apartment where you're that moment in your life where you're, you know, you're on your own. And it's sort of scary, but you're on your own. It's mm -hmm. exhilarating. It's filled with possibility. And it seems to me, I mean, uh, I mean, every, <laughs> the, the, the Dobbs decision was interesting because it's sort of, it's forcing a whole bunch of people to take a good hard look uh, at their politics and their choices and their attention. I mean, if you're a United States congressman or senator, you've been demoted, um, legitimately demoted mm -hmm. in favor of your state assemblyman or state representative, whatever you have, you know, your house of Burgesses, depending on, <laughs> depending on where you are, right? Suddenly those things are important. Suddenly it's important. Grassroots politics is important. Suddenly what you, how your neighbor is going to vote, it matters. Um, we're not going to do this macro politics anymore on the big issues of like, well, I can afford to lose this, these states and I'll get 11,000 votes in this state and I'll be president. None of that's going to matter anymore for the big issues. And I think that is the way it was designed. And that is, we've kind of lost our way. And now uh, there's a, a lot of, I think a lot of disquiet among people who, some of whom even may be pro-life pro for the fact that we are going to enter a new phase of American politics. I, I can't help but think it's going to be better. The trick is convincing uh, the other side that that's the case, because if it requires a huge political effort and uh, on 50 states and whatever to get back to the status quo, that's, that's bad. That's just simply bad for them. They're, they don't feel as if they should have to do the work because this is an obvious right. good. And any right, institution right. or politician uh, that stands in the way of the obvious good has to be brushed aside. I mean, for all the talk about our democracy and our sacred constitution and our elections and the rest of it, they really don't care about any of those things. 
as long as they can get these basic things enshrined forever. So we're going to, I mean, it's going to be, uh, I, I agree. It's going to be exhilarating and it's a good, and it's a good stress test for the, for the society. Um, and I don't think that we're any less virtuous than we were, you know, hundred years. I mean, the idea somehow that we've fallen very far and that, uh, you know, good, honest, decent farmers would have come to town a hundred years ago and listened to a debate and then cast their vote with sober judgment. No, this place has been full of messy human beings since sure. it was and still is. Because human so, beings are messy. Yeah. Right. And we've but got I mean, social it, media it, in the mix right now, which is going to be incredibly destructive because if you look at how these narratives are being framed on Twitter and the rest of it, you can say, no, Twitter doesn't matter. It's not the real... No, it's not, but it feeds up into the major media machines. This is being portrayed as the patriarchy. This is being portrayed as fascism. This is being portrayed as the, as, as a theocratic rule over America. And in order to have the conversation that Rob wants to have, and I think we have to, we got to get rid of that stuff first. I mean, we're already. No, we don't. In- I mean, the, the, the beauty of the court and the beauty of the decision is that you you, you don't have a choice. You know, if you want to continue, if you want to completely want, you want to whine and cry and moan and and bitch about it, if you're a pro-choice or something, you can, but um, you're not really going to help yourself. The best thing to do is to sort of decide, okay, all the money we were spending on direct mail pieces and all this other stuff for for big federal, either, uh, you know, statewide or uh, statewide elections, essentially. Now they need to figure out, you know, counties in Mississippi and we need to go door to door. No, I now agree we need to that. actually what, what engage I, in American politics. I, no, I agree. What I'm saying is that the, is that the language determines how we debate the issues, and whoever has mm. control of the terms helps shape the debate. Which is why nowadays we're not talking about equality; we're talking about diversity, inclusion, equity, and the rest of it, because these terms have been draped around idea about argues about issues that we want to argue about, and we have to fight right. those definitions in order to start to debate the real thing. I, yeah, that, I, that's I all guess. I'm I, I think, yeah. But this is the other side of, I think, the, you know, no one gets everything they want. And this is the other side, I think, of the Supreme Court decision, the Dobbs decision, is that a lot of conservatives don't know how to do that either. A lot of conservatives don't know how to go door to door and persuade somebody to disagree with you either. And they're going to have to do that, too. Um, the, the one, the, the, the biggest loser, it seems to me, in this decision isn't the pro-choice movement. And it's it's. The media, it's Twitter. Mm-hmm. These things are now utterly irrelevant. There is nothing that in the big media can do that can affect how you vote for your state representative. They don't even know who your state representative is. Right. Most people don't even know right. who the state representative is. So <laughs> what they what we've just been assigned by the U.S. Supreme Court is a civics lesson with a civics project attached to it. And a lot of people don't like that. And I kind of think the whole thing's exhausting myself. But that's the country we live in, and it's the country that was designed by some geniuses 200-plus years ago. And that's the system that works. And, you know, we got to agree. If only they, if only they agreed. If only they agreed that the, that the founders were, in, in fact, had a level. But they don't have to. Like, it doesn't matter because that's, the, they, that's what they have to do anyway. It's like it doesn't really matter. Well, I'm going to bust say. in. Yeah. I'm going to bust right. in because I have this, this little th- that you both agree with, I think. Here's the second paragraph of Adam Liptak's report in the, Walt, in the New York Times today. Liptak, by the way, beautiful writer and generally pretty dispassionate in reporting on the court. Just listen to this. The rule, paragraph two, the ruling will test the legitimacy of the court, 
and vindicate a decades-long Republican project of installing conservative justices prepared to reject the precedent, which had been repeatedly reaffirmed by earlier courts. It will also be one of the signal legacies of President Donald J. Trump. All three of his appointees were in the majority in the 6-3 ruling. Close quote. So there we have the line they're going to take. Mm -hmm. This is illegitimate. It's part of the aberration of the Trump years. Mm -hmm. It was a totally partisan political project. Now, every bit of that is wrong. And one of the virtues of the Alito ruling is that it's so dry. Most of the decision is so dry. It's just legal reasoning. But right. there's the line they're going to take. And in, in a certain sense, this may get this may this may be a difficult summer. Honestly, my bet is that Rob is exactly right that this will burn itself out. What they they've been spent the last four or five years saying that it's Republicans and Trump support blah 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 who want to subvert the constitutional norms. You couldn't ask for a more clarion call. Well, you could ask for a more clarion call because it's the New York Times. Everything is slightly muted, but you couldn't ask for better marching orders for challenging the constitutional right. norm here. Um, my guess, though, is my feeling about it all is that Rob is right, the center will hold, the institutions will contain all of this, and eventually, even New York Times readers will understand that the job here is civics, convincing our neighbors. At, one, at some point, it will occur to the exhausted or smart or strategic or just constitutional nerd on the pro-choice side that there is no federal solution to their problem. There is only a local solution to their problem. And um, when they figure that out, we're going to have a real conversation. But in the meantime, um, they, they, they could exhaust themselves, but there's no federal solution to this. You just got to go pass laws in the 50 states. True. But they believe that the, there is a federal state solution to everything. It, it, it is necessary to wrap everything mm -hmm. into a centralized state because that ensures the proper outcome. I mean, I'm with you, Peter. The court disagrees, and the court has the last say. The court has the right. final word, and it disagrees. So, all right. So, we'll all, all this good that... news. It's all, all good news. I'm exhausted by all this good news. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll all agree then, unlike the rest of the country. We'll end on that. Uh, hey, this podcast was brought to you by Bowling Branch. Support them for supporting us. Join Ricochet today if you would. Give us that five star review and whatnot. And, Peter, Rob, are we on next week for the fourth, or are we off, or can't be the fourth oh, I don't already? Know. That's a good question. Can't be the fourth already. All right, we're on for Friday, so good. And off the following week. My mom always said that okay. when the 4th of July was over, then the summer was over. I hate that she said that, but I kind of feel that she's right. Then again, here I am in 95-degree temperature with no air conditioning, so the faster we move to fall, perhaps the better. <clears throat> no, never wish away time was the other thing that my mother said. Anyway, uh, speaking of time, we're done. See you in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.